first episode of the Unexplored Territory podcast. This week we have Kit Colbert as our guest. His career trajectory is nothing but inspiring. Starting as an intern and now acting as the CTO for the entire company, we wanted to know if this was all a part of a predefined plan. Welcome, Kit. Let's start at the beginning. Can you please introduce yourself? Yeah, I'm Kit Colbert, CTO for VMware. You were involved with the creation of both vMotion as well as Storage vMotion. I think some of us have heard the story of Mike Nelson taking a sabbatical and coming back with industry-changing technology, but I believe that's not entirely true. Can you tell us how vMotion came about? Yeah, sure. Yeah, I don't know. I've not heard that story before, but it is Mike Nelson who created vMotion. People tend to think that I created it, but I just worked on it for many years after its creation. Um, so as it turns out, Mike Nelson was actually, by happenstance, uh, my mentor while I was an intern uh, in the summer of 2002 at VMware. And I distinctly remember uh, over that summer uh, seeing a demo of vMotion. The first time I think he had shown it in, internally, let alone externally. Uh, but it was pretty cool because they had like, this is, I think, Windows 98 time frame <laughs> type thing. So he basically had like that old pinball game. And so he had two you know, ESX servers, and uh, they were connected over the network. And he had um, you know, two monitors, one for each one. And, and uh, on one of the monitors, he had a VM up and running, and it was an old Windows 98 thing playing pinball. And he'd shoot the pinball off, and you'd see it kind of arcing around the, uh, the surface there. <clears throat> then he'd execute the vMotion. And sure enough, the window would pop up on the other side and the ball would keep moving and everything was just going like it was. And we even did demos with like uh, Windows Media Player and other sorts of things to show that, hey, like there's like no blip in the video. So it was like really, really cool stuff uh, that he had. Now, how he came up with it, I think some of the early thoughts or some of these early things happened a bit before my time when I was interning. But I do recall seeing an email from him Mike Nelson, at some point, uh, I think maybe in the spring of that year, basically with the observation that like, hey, we have this ability to serialize VM state through our checkpointing mechanisms, right? So you could do, at the time, you could do suspend and resume. And what that did was you had to basically save the entire state of the virtual machine and serialize it, i.e. put it into some you know standard format and, and save it to disk. And then you can uh, restore the whole thing sometime later on. And his observation was, well, hey, if we can do this to a disk, why can't we do this over the network? And um, obviously, there's a, there's a few more things to do there in order to, to really get it such that there's no interruption to the VM. Uh, you, you want to send... Well, I guess, actually, now that I think about it, this would actually happen. Okay, sorry. I'm thinking out loud here. But I was going to say you have to send a reverse ARP to like, kind of wake up the network to tell it, hey, that, that this IP address is now available here. But we would actually have to do that on a VM restore anyway. So generally speaking, pretty much all the basics were there except for the network transfer of the data. And that's where you need things like pre-copy uh, to iteratively copy the memory so, so you can reduce it to a small enough working set that you can then copy that over while the VM is being suspended and resumed on the other host. Um, so he was a very sharp guy and he saw you know pretty clearly, hey, that this is very doable. So he went out and did it. Now... I don't. I never met or not, never really known Bill Joy, but I, I think Mike Nelson and Bill Joy are kind of kindred spirits in the sense that, like, what I always heard about Bill Joy was that the dude could just like rip out code and, and just go so fast, but the code was basically unmaintainable to anyone except for Bill. 
like everyone else was like, what is going on here? It's like, this makes no sense. Yet he was fine with it. Mike Nelson was very similar. So I remember uh, a couple of years later, after I'd come back full time and uh, after I'd worked on another project, I started looking into vMotion and I was just like, I was staring at this code, like trying to get my head wrapped around, like how did this thing actually work? And it took me a long time to, to get my head fully wrapped around it. I was, luckily, Mike was still here at the time, so I was able to go back and get advice from him. But um, after I took over, I had to sort of essentially rewrite the whole thing <laughs> in, in a way that, that was maintainable by myself and, and others. Um, and, you know, the, the other thing was that the very early versions made some assumptions that weren't quite as uh, resilient as we would like moving forward, as well as the fact that we had to tr- uh, consistently battle these kind of tremendous performance challenges where VMs were always increasing in size, somewhat linear, maybe even super linearly, whereas network speeds were very much a step function that they'd be fixed at, you know, 1G and then eventually at some point, you know, ramp up to 10. But between the 1 and 10, you had to figure out how do I actually make these larger and larger monster VMs work in those environments. So it was a pretty fun time. And um, I remember, you know, especially when we introduced uh, the ability to, to support swapping in ESX 3.0, that actually put a whole additional wrinkle of complexity into vMotion because now we had to deal with that. And I remember going through a number of different designs that we actually implemented and then had to throw away because it didn't quite work as well as we would have liked. Uh, so it was, it was a very early time and one of those things where the space was still very unexplored and we hadn't really figured out everything. So it was it was yeah, really fun time. And, you know, Mike uh, was a great mentor. I learned a tremendous amount from him. And, you know, he was the pioneer of emotion. Yeah, I can imagine those must have been fun times. And one of the things that I was wondering is uh, you were also involved with uh, storage vMotion, of course. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you look at the industry, I think it, it changed the industry forever, right? If you look at the IT industry, it was never really possible to do any maintenance on storage systems or hosts in general without any downtime. Is this something that you guys realized at that point in time? Was it, you know, obvious immediately that this would be game changing? Dude, that's a, that's a funny story because uh, I've told it a few times because like, you look at it in retrospect, you know, and you're kind of like, how could you not have told us, like seen this thing for being a huge, you know, value to the customer and, and being hugely impactful? But I don't think I'm that intelligent, maybe, or something. I don't know, because I didn't really get it. Like, I kind of came into it similarly to like how the story I described from Mike and with him and VMotion, where after after working now on, on VMotion for a while, this was probably a 2006, 2007 time frame, something like that. And you know, we, we realized that, hey, like, um, the way that vMotion was architected actually would allow us to do a migration uh, of the disk that if we could, but, but keep the VM on the same host. That we had most, most of the things there, we just needed some of this uh, data mover capabilities uh, for the storage in the same way that we need to move memory. And so we had this thing, and, and initially, internally, we called it D-Motion. D is in disk, because this is why they don't let us do marketing. But in any case, um, that was sort of the name for it. And, and the original prototype was very simple. It was uh, essentially what we called a self-V-Motion, where you can V-Motion to the same host. Uh, but you, you change the disk while, while you do that. And um, so I actually was able to bang that out pretty quickly from, from a code standpoint, because again, like the broad architecture of V-Motion lent itself quite well to that. It was unclear to me, though, what the customer value would be. 
And I struggled in this a few ways. So number one, I was like talking to some of the PMs and other folks, execs at VMware saying, hey, I, th- I think this might be useful, but you know, I don't really, uh, you know, I don't have any specific customers yet or whatever. So it was finally when I was, I think it was VMworld uh, 2006, maybe, that I finally started having some customer conversations. And the feedback there came back loud and clear. Everyone was like, dude, <laughs> are you kidding me? Like, because like the, the main use case at the time was to do SAN migrations, these things that were hugely expensive, expensive and took forever and just took a lot of people and had a lot of downtime. People realized like, dude, I could take this thing like multi-month, multi-person, million dollar effort and turn it into a drag and drop. And uh, when someone said that to me one time, I was like, ah, okay, <laughs> there's the value prop. And I don't know why that wasn't clear to me before, uh, but it became very clear to me then. And at the same time, simultaneously, I managed to find uh, a product manager who worked on storage with, within uh, the vSphere team that got it as well. And he was like, oh, man, we got to go do this. And so he was actually able to go and advocate on my behalf with an exec who made the decision to uh, remove something else from the release so we could fit in what would become storage emotion. Now, what was funny about it is that the storage emotion that came out in the 3.5 release I mean, uh, using the word hack would be strong, but it definitely wasn't ideally architected in the sense that that storage emotion technology at the time was truly a, a self vMotion. The internal mechanics of it were doing a vMotion on the same host. So you have this, you basically, we double the memory usage within the host for a small amount of time because well, we're literally copying the memory from one piece of RAM to another <laughs> within the host. It was like so immensely pointless but uh it was necessary based on the architecture in terms of time to market and all these other things and not only that you know the the implementation itself was lacking in in so many ways we um we didn't have ui integration we only officially supported fiber channel sand we we didn't support you know all the other like nfs type things that, that we had at the time uh so it was very very limited but i was actually shocked at how quickly the uptake was, how quick the uptake was from customers. You know, I remember talking to some guy uh, that next year at VMworld, and he was like, oh, man, he found out that I was doing storage remotion. He was like, oh, man, this is so awesome. I'm transferring, like, you know, 10 terabytes a day using this thing. And I'm sitting there thinking, like, dude, as, you know, the guy who wrote the code and the technical lead for storage remotion, I find that to be questionable practice. (laughs) Like moving that much data, like I know how this thing's built. But the guy was like, "No, no, it's rock solid, man. It's, it works great." So I was like, "Okay." Um, so it was it was amazing to see that sort of of uptake so quickly. And then what was also really cool is that because we did take uh, you know sort of we opened the API for it, but the UI wasn't there, and we had a command line tool. But the, the ecosystem sort of filled in. We had a bunch of uh, customers jump in and create. Uh, UI plugins. And so it was cool to see the sort of creativity and and the gap filling that can happen uh, when you have a platform like that. But then, of course, we realized that, you know, well, from the beginning, we realized we needed to do better. And so we re-architected part of the, well, we kind of generalized the vMotion architecture to support both optimized vMotions and optimized storage emotions. And for the optimized storage emotion one, we, um, ended up creating a technology called fast suspend resume. So for various reasons, 
um, when you change the storage of a VM, you know, a lot of it's not only is, is disks actually move, but it's all its metadata files as well. And so for various historical reasons, a running virtual machine can't switch it, what, what metadata files it's, it's using. And so the way to do that is to literally restart the, the VMX and VMM processes. And so that's what fast suspend resume does. So in any case, with the 4.0 release, we, we fixed all of the uh, inefficiencies of the 3.5 release. And, and then, you know, I guess it's a happily ever after story with Storage Remotion. Well, and I think we, we all have been a user of your technology. And so what I've noticed was in the beginning when you looked at Mike Nelson's code, you were an intern and, and later on you were a permanent employee. And when you were working on, on Storage Remotion, you were already a tech lead, and so you were a senior person, but you also moved between business units within the company. Was that sometimes a conscious decision within your career? or? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I can't say that I had a long-term strategic plan for where I was going to end up. I think it was more that I would find after something between three and four years, I'd be ready for a change. And it usually because, as well, opportunities would just sort of present themselves. So, for instance, after, well, so when I first started at VMware, I started working on uh, the VM kernel, so like the core kernel of ESX. And the first project, or the, the main project to work on there, was adding what's called uh, user, what we called user world support, which is essentially just user level uh, applications, so basically POSIX compliance for, for the VM kernel. So I spent about two years on that. And you know, it wasn't like that was done, but it was coming to a point where I felt like I could move off and, and focus on other areas. And so that's where I, I picked up vMotion. And literally at the time, it didn't really have much of an owner. Like Mike had moved off, he was doing other things. Someone else had sort of maintained it for a bit, but you know, it was kind of just sitting there. So I was like, oh, let's start playing with it. So I started playing with it and fixing stuff. And next thing you know, I became the point person on it. So it sort of just happened very organically. And yes, it sounds insane. How is it that vMotion was just sitting there and no one's working on it given the strategic importance of the technology. But, you know, it was early days and we were still kind of a startup back then. So, you know, these things happen. But in any case, uh, after about four years at, uh, doing vMotion and storage vMotion, there came an opportunity to focus on performance management. And uh, I think the execs like Ragu actually at the time realized that, hey, like there's a big opportunity uh, to get into performance management for these vSphere environments. Customers were telling us, we, love a, we would love a way for you to help us understand when performance is good, when it's bad, how, how we should think about it. So that, you know, I kind of jumped into because vMotion had actually prepared me for that. Like, anytime there was weird performance issues, either within uh, ESX or the hardware itself or network, it would manifest typically as a vMotion failure. And of course, I would get called in to go and fix that, right? It'd be customer escalation or whatever it is. So I had to go through and, and figure it out. Now, of course, it was never actually vMotion because my code is like just mint, right? But it was all this like other stuff around there, other subsystems and, and like, you know, just weird environmental behaviors. But the point is that what it had given me is a really good understanding for like the deep uh, plumbing uh, and, and underlying, you know, systems uh, of ESX and uh, the causes of those sort of performance issues. So it made me sort of uh, a subject matter expert, I guess you could say, on ESX performance. And so it worked out really well because I was like, hey, we, we need some of that for this performance management product. It was really great for me, though, because I didn't know 
the performance management space, right? Like I knew ESX performance, but I didn't know the, the, the general space of how do you build a tool to manage performance and to monitor it and so forth. And so that was super eye-opening for me and I learned a lot. Um, and eventually that, you know, we, we, we took some twists and turns. Eventually that became V Realize Operations. And so it was really cool to be able to help kick that thing off and, and, and learn so much doing so. But then, you know, after about four years again, um, I felt that the team was in a good spot. We had uh, some maturity in the team and the organization. And so it was, okay, time for me to make another change. I just felt like I wasn't really, I mean, I stopped learning as much, obviously, because uh, I've been doing, doing this space for four years. But I also thought that, you know, I wanted to give other people a shot at stepping up and, um, you know, driving more leadership there. So I ended up in end user computing. And there I kind of just got lucky in the sense that uh, Sanjay Poonin had joined around that time. And so, you know, Sanjay and I talked a lot and he eventually offered me the role of CTO for end user computing, which was uh, super cool because I really got a much broader purview rather than focusing on a single team. It was like a much broader lens that I was looking through. And I was able to you know, help work on the acquisition of AirWatch and then Cloud Volumes and some of these other really very cool technologies. And I, one of the really interesting things for me was, again, like learning all about the end-user computing space. And frankly, I was kind of like surprised at like the state of some of it. Like, you know, Windows is tough to manage, especially back then. And, and so, you know, I, I looked at what we were doing with AirWatch and so the, the simplicity that AirWatch enabled in terms of mobile device management. And I'm like, well, why can't we do that for Windows? And of course, they'd, everyone would explain to me all the trials and tribulations of trying to manage applications on Windows. But then, you know, through things like cloud volumes and technologies we developed like instant clones uh, using the VM fork technology, we had the beginnings of a way of starting to enable Windows to be managed more like mobile devices. And so there was like a whole vision that we put together on how do we unify that management. And it's been awesome to see in the, what, seven, eight years since I was there, or no, yeah, whatever, six, seven years since I was there, that that's really uh, where we've gone. That Workspace One is, and, and, you know, obviously the evolution of Windows itself, Windows 10, Windows 11 became much more manageable allows us uh to to realize that so so i kind of just um was in the right place at the right time i guess for that one but in the same time i I feel like you get luck but then you also have to capitalize on on the lucky situations as well and i don't know i could keep going on this like uh, each one of these times have just been like i'll I'll talk one one more story and then we can move on but you know the shift from euc to cloud native now that one was a bit uh more sudden than i expected in fact, I kind of felt bad because I'd only been CTO for Sanjay for about a year. And I kind of implicitly told him, hey, like, this is kind of like a two, like, oh, you got me for two years at least. And you know, then we'll see, right? That's usually when you sign up for something in Silicon Valley, it's at least 18 months, if not two years. Um, but what I started seeing was the advent of Docker and containers and all this noise uh, around, oh, you know, VMs are dead and blah, 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 blah. So I was like, oh, man, this is worrisome not to mention the rise of um sort of uh the app team and developers as being a new buying or at least influence center um you know within um enterprise sales motions so any case i saw these sort of headwinds and i was like "Ooh, vmware's got to respond to this and so i started organizing some stuff internally and eventually realized okay this is going to need more 
you know, kind of full, full engagement. So I talked with Sanjay about it. I was like, Hey, I think I need to go do this, this cloud native thing. And luckily he was super supportive. He was like, yeah, like this is clearly important. It's clearly your passion. So you should go do it. Um, so, you know, we, we went and did it and, uh, started up the cloud native business unit, which, you know, now many years later is what Tanzu and, and these things are all about. We didn't know what we were doing at the time though. Um, we were trying to figure out this like net new space and like how we needed to respond. And so anyway, that was another huge area of learning, but it was one of those things where I was kind of just keeping my eyes out and then noticed something big was happening and no one was seemed to be doing anything at a company level. So I'm like, well, someone's got to do something. So I guess, I guess it's me. Um, so, you know, it's kind of like you look through all these transitions that I've made and again, it hasn't been one, giant strategy like you know some people have that some people say you know like pat for instance pat always wanted to be ceo of intel if you ever read his book you know like that was his top thing and he was you know always like gunning for that for me i, I didn't necessarily have that um, vision it was more like i'm just love working on interesting stuff and i really am happy when i can contribute back and make an impact especially at a broad level like like the company level and, and so I think I've just been very fortunate to have had those opportunities. Um, and yeah, that's, that's kind of what's driven me. Although I will say probably for the past, yeah, like four-ish years, I have had my eyes more set now on VMware CTO. It's like, because I was a CTO in different areas of the company, and I was like, man, I'd really love to step up and do it at the company level overall. So obviously feel very fortunate that uh, I was able to do it here. Cool. What, 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 what I'm kind of interested in is that you you had different CTO roles at, at VMware, all driving different types of business, but also having a different strategy or different vision. How do you determine the vision with, within those different roles? In, in, for instance, like the CTO role mm -hmm. at, in, in yep. EUC or the one yep. in, in multi-cloud? Yeah, it's a good question. And I don't think I've got any specific tried and true formula per se. Uh, at least none that's been, you know, structured or codified in my mind. But I, I think it's a few things. So number one, I I really love learning, and I really love just like talking with people and listening and just learning about the stuff they're working on. And and I usually tend to pepper them with questions about, well, why is it this way? And like, especially if it's not the way I might think it is, just naively coming into it. And so, you know, this, I, by the way, is happening right now as well as I start to you know, spend time with all the different teams uh, within the Octo. There's a ton of different things, especially a lot of incubation things. And so it's been great, very, very stimulating to learn about all this stuff. So typically there's that part. Then there's almost certainly engaging with customers as well and just saying, you know, kind of, where are you? What are you looking for? What, what would you like? And maybe starting to then share some ideas around what we might be able to do and what, what might be useful to them. And, uh, and then, you know, to, to leverage a lot of people, a lot, a lot of the great insights don't come directly from me, honestly. Like, I try to leverage the team and this kind of this, this body of, of folks that, that have tremendous insights. I think what I'm good at is really taking a lot of that feedback and, and thinking and distilling it down into kind of its essential, right? If I look at what, what are my big strengths are, I think that's a big part of it. Because like, yeah, every now and then I'll come up with good ideas. But a lot of times I just shamelessly take other people's great ideas and like incorporate them in, right? And I think, again, like my willingness and sort of openness to spend time talking with folks and just, just listen and, and, and learn, right, is, is one of my big strengths there. So like, 
you know, you look at EUC, as I said, to me, it was always shocking, like how bad Windows management was. <laughs> and I get why, right? I get the underlying sort of technical reasons why that was, but it just seemed it was kind of offensive to me. <laughs> Things were ever that bad. And that how did we, like, as a technology industry, allow this to happen? It's just crazy. Like, and just as a personal user, like, why is it that I've got to, like, deal with, like, different devices and, like, syncing data between them? Like, it should just work. Like, all my devices should just be about me. Like, it just seems so obvious to me. So, in any case, you know, that, that one, you know, I, I think if I look at the time with CNA, I think that one, personally, I, I did struggle a bit more because... You know, we had a lot of strong folks and a lot of good ideas, but at the same time, because of the very changing nature of it, because of the fact that many of the big decision makers weren't people we typically talked to, it was harder for me to, to get a sense of what the ground reality was and what would really move the needle there. But, you know, I think I've learned a lot from that. And as we're looking at some new incubation businesses in the Octo now, I know a lot better how to think through those sorts of questions and to get the right sorts of feedback and data points. You mentioned uh, <laughs> Windows management, and I got a strong passion for end-use computing. I think the, the first time we met was actually mm -hmm. when you were CTO back then. Now, back then, prior to the AirWatch acquisition, you probably had talks with customers. You had mm -hmm. talks with brilliant engineers. And now suddenly you get the idea to change how we manage Windows. Now, when does the idea of, for instance, acquiring AirWatch pop up? So I think the, the thing was that here's the way it was, right? So I was coming into it and we had, uh, you know, Horizon going really well, big business there. And then we had this sort of mobile uh, group that they, they were kind of starting up. But it was a fairly small group and from my recollection, didn't have a, a clear strategy and frankly, which is not really well funded the task at hand so i think one of the benefits of sanjay coming on is that he very clearly saw this was a huge market and that there's no way we're going to catch up through organic innovation right we've got to uh, buy a company and so you know the the, the there were a few big players at the time and uh, we went out and did an assessment and uh airwatch came back as as the, the right one there right so it was more that i think sanjay came in and said look it, if we're going to be serious about this, we've got to go make an acquisition there, right? So it's very much him sort of pushing that, which, you know, is absolutely right, I think, in retrospect. Not that, I did, not that I didn't believe it at the time, I just hadn't really thought through it very deeply. But it did give us that sort of acceleration that we needed. And also it gave us a platform from which to move forward. And it was especially as I was doing the due diligence that, because it was still very early on, I mean, I think I still recently just joined, that I was able to get an, an idea of sort of, okay, here's how... The, you know, these things work and sort of some, some of the direction they're going and the, the mindset they have and so forth. And so anyway, it was just a very different sort of mindset than I've been looking at from the, the desktop side. And we spent a lot of time uh, with customers, with analysts, et cetera, et cetera, tr trying to explain, okay, so now you have these two different assets, Horizon on the one hand, AirWatch on the other, how do they fit together? And like, what is that bigger picture? And so it kind of came down to me to help draw out. I mean, Sanjay could tell the high-level story, but to me, it was kind of drawing out the, the technical aspect of it. So there's a lot of things I did in terms of <clears throat> sort of high-level architecture, trying to paint that picture. And then we, you know, we ended up identifying, I think, seven different points of, of technical architectural alignment between the, the various 
components that, that we had within end user computing at the time. So that's yeah, that's sort of how it came together. Yeah, those are great stories, and I also appreciated the uh, the thing that you mentioned around cloud native apps and how that actually surprised you. You know, from a you know certain point of view in terms of new technology that popped up. Uh, if you look at the the past decade or so, were there any other new technologies that popped up or trends that you've seen in the industry that surprised you? Well, let me see. What has surprised me? I'll tell you the current one that that's been that surprised me. So what it surprised me to to learn all about the value that blockchain can have for enterprises. Because we have a blockchain team uh, within the office of the CTO here, and I you know wasn't really sure. Like I was like, what are, what's going on? With this like why are we doing the kind of cryptocurrency stuff? I said, you know, I had to get myself educated, but I didn't, I didn't understand it, right? So what I realized, or what I learned, is that it's not about cryptocurrency at all. It's very much about this fundamental distributed ledger technology that enables multi-party applications, sort of decentralized applications. And the big aha I got was that you can look at decentralized apps as sort of the, the next major architectural evolution after distributed applications. So today, the industry is in this big shift from uh, monolithic to distributed, and there's a whole bunch of stuff they're doing there with Tanzu and Kubernetes and whatnot. But then there, there may well be another industry shift from distributed to decentralized, where we go from, you know, because both monolithic and distributed applications are single party. They are operated by a single organization. Now, obviously, you know, there might be leveraging, you know, IaaS services from another organization, but there's a clear line of delineation there. Whereas, you know, like the, the database, like you got to control and manage access to that yourself. You can't let other people do that. Versus, of course, as we know, with blockchain, you got many people having direct access, right access to that database. And uh, that creates all sorts of new problems. And so I think when you look at um, what's happening on the uh, financial side, the ability, like, why does it still take oftentimes like three or four days to settle transactions? It's because it's still very much a very manual process. And so, you know, the financial institutions are moving toward digitizing everything so they can immediately settle these different transactions and do so very, very quickly, and yet still have all the same protections and safeguards that they've had before. And this is very much a multi party process. You've got multiple banks interacting with each other. You've got various sorts of government regulatory agencies that need to be absolutely deeply plugged into all of these transactions, right? Like they need to know everything that's going on, full access to the books, right? But guess what? Shared database. You can now do that with blockchain. Uh, you know, supply chain is another really interesting one where you have multiple parties working together. And again, today, a lot of times it's very, you know, one-off type implementations, very manual process sort of stuff. So I feel like we're going to identify more and more of these use cases over time. And it is probably a three to five year vision. But like, you know, this whole notion of, of sort of decentralized multi-party apps, that was something that was super revelatory for me. And, you know, I got it now. I'm drinking the Kool-Aid. But it's not something that I expected. And then one other one I'll add, which is kind of the maybe kind of inverse of your question. But I think I was surprised with Cloud Native sort of at how long it took because when it first happened i was very very worried right I, I i thought this was an existential threat for vmware and i guess in many ways it was but we responded admirably like you know very very quickly and stepped up to to do a lot of good stuff but even if we hadn't like fast forward you know it's been five six years now and i think the market is still maturing there and that's one of the things that i think really it surprised me because when i saw 
Docker first coming out, I'm like, oh man, this thing's you know going to be over quick, and so unless we move quickly, blah blah blah. But we're still seeing now, maybe just starting to hit maturity point uh, within the industry, and even that could be argued, right? And so I think when you look at enterprise computing, uh, it does take you know ch- change does take a while, but at the same time, you got to be ready for it, and you got to be you know willing to act. I just had thought uh, we had much less time that, than we actually did, and so I think that was something that caught me by surprise. Yeah, and those interesting new technologies are always something that we try to cater to as a company. And so this is something we typically see at VMworld where we try to announce new projects and try to let our customers know that, hey, this is the, the things are that are on the horizon and, and we're focusing on this as well. And so th- this is what we saw at this VMworld as, as well. I think we're already two weeks in after our, our VMworld. And... I saw a lot of, or we saw a lot of new projects uh, being announced. And so we would like to, to discuss a few of them. Sure. And, and maybe we can hear some of your thoughts about uh, some. So maybe we can start with, I believe, one of the biggest one, Project Monterey. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so Project Monterey is pretty cool because th- this is another sort of industry inflection point uh, with SmartNICs. So SmartNICs are, are very interesting for a number of reasons. So the basic construct is that you take a NIC and you put basically a full server onto that NIC, a general purpose CPU, uh, memory, you know, the, the whole nine yards. And the reason for doing that is to enable various sorts of offload uh, and processing directly on the NIC. Now, you know, modern NICs, they have both hardwired offload functionality, like, you know, um, for TCP, other protocols, security, you know, you name it, right? And then they also have oftentimes specialized things like uh, P4 is like a, one sort of offload example there. But this is actually talking about something more general, like a truly general purpose, usually an ARM processor sitting there directly on the NIC. And what it enables you to do, because there is, you know, an SOC there that you can really run an operating system directly there on that NIC. And I think the, the reasons for this are, are pretty interesting. So let's take a step back just really quick. Now, oftentimes you see these things happen and th- they don't last. Like we had talked about uh, NIC optimizations many years ago with things like the TCP IP offload engines and, and all this sort of stuff. That was kind of a thing for a while. Every time Moore's Law starts to slow a little bit, people start talking about doing more with, with, with hardware and, and more sort of moving stuff away from the CPU. And yet here we are again. And the, the reason I think this is different this time, though, is because we are seeing a tremendous amount of disaggregation of compute. And not that you know Intel can't get back on the uh, Moore's Law train, but that some of these things are fundamental architecture and inflection points, and that because of that, th- these new technologies are probably here to stay. And I do think SmartNIC is going to be one of them, even though we are very, very early. And so the reason about, I think, SmartNIC is so important is not just because of the performance you can get from using it, which there are substantial performance benefits, but also for the architecture. Specifically, we're able to run, with Project Monterey, two copies of ESX, one on the x86 side mainboard and one on the uh, ARM SmartNIC. And by doing this, we can actually rethink a little bit of the virtualization architecture in the sense that now... ESX is almost kind of a distributed system within the single physical host where compute virtualization will still be done on the x86 side, of course, fully offloaded to the processor. So we're not doing any software level 
virtualization. And then all the storage and networking virtualization can be done on the smart NIC. And this, again, you know, improves performance because you can do all that I.O. offload right there on the NIC on the I.O. device. You free up traffic on the PCI bus. Uh, and you reduce the amount of CPU cycles necessary to, you know, for that virtualization. Not to mention the SmartNIC can do some cool things like exposing new virtual devices on the PCI bus. So it, it looks to the x86 motherboard as if there is a real, let's say, you know, storage adapter. But there's not. It's just what, what the SmartNIC is, is virtually exposing. So this basically enables us to have um, a few things. Much greater performance, as we talked about. We can hit line rate on 100G, 200G connections uh, without saturating the CPUs. Much better uh, manageability and sort of simplicity in terms of management. Also security, because now we have this extra security domain where the I.O. virtualization is running. And finally, maybe most interestingly, we can also support bare metal. So you can actually have bare metal Linux or Windows running on the x86 side while you're still doing or still using ESX on the SmartNIC side to do the I.O. virtualization. So this is a really, really cool thing. And we think we'll open up opportunities for additional workloads that people say, hey, they're super performance sensitive or have super specific hardware requirements or whatever it is. But you can still get some of the benefits of manageability that you expect from virtual machines. So... The update at this VMworld was that you know we're out there, we're now uh, testing this out with customers. We've started to identify some customer use cases, so uh, making really good progress there. Yeah, and I think one of the things what we see with uh, the distributed uh, applications and the data needs of them that the, the SmartNIC will be a, a a really nice contribution to offloading the the x86 for all the I/O on on the network. Yep, absolutely. I guess the, the, the other thing that it actually will do is it will actually free up a lot of resources from a uh, CPU perspective as well. And I think that actually brings us to the next uh, project because as soon as you will have more and more CPU resources to give the virtual machines, you will probably end up with not enough memory resources. And that's where Project Capitola comes into play. So what are your thoughts around Project Capitola? Yeah. So Capitola is really focused on enabling this concept called memory tiering. The idea being that we're getting more and more options in terms of different types of memory and how we expose that to uh, to customers. So in the beginning, you know, we had DRAM and, and spinning disks. Spinning disks are very, very slow. You know, many, many, many orders of magnitude slower than DRAM. And so what you saw is that applications really designed around this fundamental aspect of the underlying hardware. And it was just kind of this invariant that you had to deal with. But... As time has gone on, we, we've started to get a lot more options um, filling in sort of the spectrum in, in between the, these two, you know, sort of black and white sides, right? Some, some more of the grays in the middle. And, you know, you look at things like SSDs, okay, getting much faster, lowering latency. And now we've got uh, the, the uh, per, um, persistent memory, which is memory that's a little bit slower than DRAM, but you can maintain its value, its state across reboots. Not only that, what we see coming is much faster interconnects like CXL, allowing you to get uh, coherent access to a remote physical host. <clears throat> now, that will still be a little bit slower because you got to traverse you know, a cable and everything, but it's still very, very fast. So what, what you start to see is that there are now a whole bunch of options in terms of 
be, oh, sorry, well, between DRAM and, and persistent disks. So the question is, how do you best leverage that? And how do you make the best use of it? Possibly even sharing resources across hosts within a cluster. So this is exactly what Capitola is focused on. This idea of having different tiers of, of memory based on performance, sort of the fastest to the slowest. Well, obviously, generally speaking, with the fastest, you're probably going to have the least amount because it's going to be the most expensive. So you also have a capacity concern. And what this calls into question is really the scheduling algorithms. You know, where are you going to uh, put that VM's memory uh, based on its needs? <clears throat> and so this is a lot of what Capitol is trying to figure out. When you have this cluster with a bunch of different memory options, how do you best utilize that memory to maximize performance for your applications, both in terms of initial provisioning as well as load balancing? So it's an exciting one. Another project that I think is exciting is, is Project Santa Cruz. And so you were talking about thinking about where to put the memory on which memory tier, but we can also think about where to put the application in, in a bigger space, not only in the yep. data center, but somewhere else, right? Yep. Can you talk a little bit more about uh, sure. Santa Cruz? Yeah, so Santa Cruz is really focused on VMware's edge strategy. And the key thing to understand with Edge is that we tend to, first of all, we're taking a step back, we have a pretty broad definition of Edge. Edge is really anything that's not data center, not cloud region. Typically with an Edge, you don't have dedicated IT personnel on site, right? It could be a retail store or manufacturing uh, facility or, or something else. But um, when you look at those, you then see that there's a variety of kind of quote unquote sizes that some of them, yeah, like a lot of the distribution centers for certain places. They probably have a, a few racks of hardware. Whereas some grocery stores might just have, you know, three or four servers. Whereas a convenience store might just need one little server. And then you maybe even have uh, a tiny store which just has kind of a, almost like a Raspberry Pi type device to connect up some video cameras and the cash register to, you know, th these sorts of things, right? So you kind of have something from fairly data center-like to something super, super tiny. And so as we look at that, we think that some of the existing vSphere and VCF solutions are great for some of those larger footprint areas because that was what these things are designed for, right? Large-scale data centers. But we also want to make sure that we can support even the smallest form factor locations. And that's really where Project Santa Cruz comes in. And the goal there is to deliver deep integration with SD-WAN technology to enable connectivity, but also enabling uh, runtime for a small number of not too big <laughs> applications, right? Because again, we're talking about small form factor space. So a small form factor box that, we, that we'd have there, but it'd have your connectivity, it'd have your security built in, and it would also have Kubernetes running on it to support lightweight containerized applications. And you could do so while still enabling management at scale uh, of, that, of that machine uh, across environments. Again, Edge has kind of the opposite scale of a data center. Data center is one location, but many, 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 many workloads within that one location. Edge is a very small number of workloads uh, across many, 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 many different locations, basically. And so we're leveraging a lot of our SD-WAN capabilities, plus some of our Tanzu capabilities to enable that. Nice one. I think VMworld was probably, in, in terms of announcements and projects, I guess the best until so far, it it was very first still, and and there's a lot. Yeah, I think it is. Moment. I think it's. I mean, it's hard to say which one's the best. I mean, they're all. I got fond memories of so many of them, but 
I definitely think it's one of the, one of the largest set of announcements, one of the broadest set of announcements, and also in some ways one of the most important set of announcements in terms of where VMware is going. You know, it's we are going through this big transformation ourselves, as I think we've been very clear about. Right, we're, we're in the third lap of our journey. We're focused on multi-cloud and modern applications, and not only that, but also transforming into a cloud services, SaaS, and subscription company ourselves. And so there's some really foundational shifts there. I just, you know, really impressed with how so many of our products come together across different areas or areas you might not think would, would be, you know, connected. Like for, so for instance, like security, in my mind, is one of those things that just connects so many of our products, like, you know, leveraging uh, Workspace ONE to provide that end user secure access and you know, kind of locking down their device and, and ensuring they can get, get uh, access to corporate resources in a secure and safe manner. Things like Carbon Black focus on endpoint protection, and you know, something like I think the number was something like the last ninety days, helping to stop over a million ransomware attacks. Right, it's just crazy. Putting those things together is like super powerful. And then you bring in uh, NSXT and Tanzu Service Mesh, this ability to do network-based security policy on the fly, you know, automated, API-driven, really, really, really powerful. <clears throat> you look at things like what we're doing with our crypto agility project to enable people to deal with up-quanting disruptions from quantum computing. Uh, and we're plugging that thing into Tanzu Service Mesh as well. So if you're leveraging Service Mesh, it's like, hey, this thing can handle all that stuff for you automatically. And then, you know, even after that, looking at VMware Cloud Disaster Recovery and, and the sort of ransomware support we've added in there where... If you somehow, somehow an attacker is able to get through all these different defense lines I just talked about and able to actually encrypt some core data, well, we've got this sort of, you know, separated environment with uh, that DR backup data that we can very quickly restore on a per file basis even. And so this is like a really interesting thing because you see technologies from across all of our different business units, from across engineering and yet, that come together to weave a, a very, very powerful story about, in this case, security and this notion of defense in depth. But I just think this is one example of so many others that will be coming out about how we can weave together all these products such that the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. Well, that's some great stuff, Kit. Uh, now, we've got one last question before we let you go. Uh, and that's uh, like a start of a tradition. Now, as a CTO, you know that technology-wise, there's always unexplored territory, right? So uh, which emerging technologies do you feel would be interesting for our listeners to explore Ooh. in the upcoming years? Okay, well, <clears throat> that's a good one. So I, I definitely think, as I said before, blockchain. I just think it's going to be like massively huge. So I definitely go with that one. I'm blanking. I'm blanking. A chief talking officer who can't think of what to say, that is like... It's like kryptonite. I don't know. Look, I mean, I think um, service mesh is like super, super interesting. We're going to be doing a lot more with that, honestly. Uh, looking at, we're actually exploring how we can plug that deep into vSphere. So that'd be another one that if you haven't looked at yet, I just think that space is really, really opening up and that there's a tremendous amount of really cool stuff we can do. Because again, it gives us a really powerful layer of indirection there. Um, and then it's not a technology, but just a space would just be edge computing. That's a really, really big focus for us and a huge area of growth, I think. Awesome. Well, thank you, Kit, for a great first episode. Um, let's wrap it up, Duncan. 
Thanks, Johan. And that's it. We've reached the end of the very first episode of the Unexplored Territory podcast. If I have to summarize today's episode, I think a couple of things stand out. First and foremost, you can grow from an intern position to a CTO position if you are aware of all of the opportunities that pop up and you capitalize on those opportunities as well. I think that is something that Kit made extremely clear today. The other thing that I think that stood out is the fact that if you innovate, it's really important that you have conversations with your customers to better understand their use cases as well, as they will allow you to drive the innovation even further. Something like Kit mentioned, for instance, around storage vMotion. Once again, thanks for listening. Make sure to subscribe and like the podcast. You can find us on Twitter on at UnexportPod. I would like to thank my co-hosts and of course our guest of today, Kit Colbert, for a great first episode. All right. Thanks for having me.